Follow that. Amen. Amen. All right. If you have your Bibles, open them up. We are ready for Second uh, Peter chapter three. So in Second Peter chapter three, we get um, we get the last words of Peter to us. And as you guys know, last week we talked about um, the the crunch time message that Peter was delivering. And so just like Jesus tells us in John 14 through 17, his, his final message. So here we get um, from Paul in 2 Timothy at the end of his life. He shares with us some things that are really important because they, they are at the end of his life. And so here we have Peter, who, who Jesus prophesied the death of Peter. And he told Peter that what manner of death he was going to die and that he was going to die. And Peter's already told us that he knows death is upon him. And it wouldn't be long after this that Peter was a martyr for his faith. And history tells us, the Bible doesn't record the death of Peter, but, but the history and the historians record that Peter was crucified by the Romans for his faith and for his, his belief and, and not recanting upon his story. And when they crucified him, Peter requested that he be crucified upside down because he said he wasn't worthy to die in the manner which his Lord died. And so, so, so Peter was crucified upside down. And this is his final message. Last week, chapter 2, the message was about... Somebody, please tell me they remember. Just turn back and read the little um, captions on chapter 2 if you forgot. The last two words there are false teacher. So last week, Peter is warning us that there's going to be false teachers among us. We, we got into that and, and unpacked that last week. And that as Christians, we have to be on our guard from false teachers and that they're prevalent. John tells us in, in the same vein of, of antichrist and, and types of, of, of lies and falsehoods that would rise up. Now, in this chapter, coming right off of that vein of, of false teachers, Peter is going to continue. Now, something about First Peter, Second Peter chapter 3, I need to warn you. Second Peter chapter 3 is one of those chapters in the Bible that is just deeper than, than, than the Mariana Trench in the Philippines. I mean, this thing is deep. There's so much packed in this chapter of theology, of eschatology, of um, just so many new, new revelations and um, just stuff. Pack, 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 science and evolution and creation and Jesus's return. And, you know, really to do this chapter real justice, we'd spend about six weeks going through first, second Peter chapter three and, and still not scratch the surface because it's just that chapter. Amen. So here's what we're going to do. I'm not going to do that to you. We're not going to spend six weeks in second Peter chapter three. We're going to try to just do today an overview of the entire chapter. Now, I'm going to make a few suggestions as we go through because there's a couple things that we're not going to have time to unpack today that, that are important. So I'll make a couple suggestions of things if you're interested and you want to do dig a little deeper, um, some things you can read, watch, just easy stuff to get through Second Peter chapter 3. So the first part of Second Peter chapter 3, and the theme is, now you guys ready? I'm going to expect like an applause here in a minute, so I'm just going to warn you so I don't disappoint myself. When you don't, um, the theme is that Jesus is coming back. Praise God. Praise God. Now, Jesus is coming back. Now, I want to tell you, do not be, and I preached this sermon, you guys, already a bunch. You're probably tired of hearing it, but just deal with it because I'm going to keep preaching it. 
You do not need to be ashamed. You do not need to be embarrassed. You do not need to be apologetic. It is in the text. It's not made up. It's not ad lib. It's not us being fanatical. The Bible is very clear. The entire theme of the New Testament is the fact that Jesus is coming back. He's coming. As a matter of fact, the Bible says, uh, I ran into some stats that, um, that, that, that the number one topic in the New Testament is faith. The number one word, if you Googled or you um, ran through concordance, the New Testament words, the number one idea and topic that's taught of on more of all the different authors in the New Testament is the idea of faith. You know what number two is? The return of Jesus Christ. The return of Jesus Christ, one in every 30 verses in the New Testament speaks of the return of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself said 21 times out of his own mouth, different times he was coming back. Now, we could go to 21 of them, but I'll just pick one. If you go to John chapter 14, in the most famous one, Jesus said in John chapter 14, he said in verse 2, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, in verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Chinese, anybody? English, right? I will come again. And Jesus is coming back. Do you know what the entire 4,000 years of, of Old Testament history from Adam to Jesus is all about? That God was going to send a deliverer, a Messiah. You know, for every Jewish girl growing up, for every Jewish boy, for every Jewish um, lifestyle and community was an expectation growing up through the study of the Old Testament scriptures that God was going to send a Messiah. You know what's happening in Israel to this day to the Jews that didn't receive Jesus as their Messiah? They're waiting for their Messiah. Now they missed him. He already came. But, but the theme of the Old Testament is that Jesus, or that God would send Jesus the Messiah. And you know what the entire theme of the New Testament is? Jesus is coming back. And so Peter here is, is, is making that first uh, statement that Jesus is coming back. Now, um, we're, we're, we will get into it, um, but I want to verse by verse. But, but as we get in, there's three things I want you to, if you take notes, if you're a note taker, um, you should be a note taker anyways. It just, it'll help your church experience. It'll, help, it'll, it'll keep you awake a little bit longer instead of falling asleep like after 10 minutes. You might make it to like 12. Take notes. Write them down. Not that even you have to go back and study them all the time. And, but, but the way that you receive, um, it, it changes when you take notes. So I encourage you to, to, to be a note taker. Um, keep some papers in your Bible and, and, and a pen. And just write some things down. Write some notes in the margin. But three things here to start. There's three things that are the, the, the great lies of the end times. Three things that, 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 that Peter warns us that, that are going to be perpetuated, that Satan is going to use, and that the world is going to be, um, in the world is going to be these three great lies at the end times. You ready? Number one, the first one is that Jesus is not coming back. Number two is that there was never a flood of Noah. And number three is that, is that there was no creation. So the three things that Peter's going to tell us here in the first nine verses that's going to happen now... Time-wise, the end times, it's specific that, that we're dealing with now, the end times or the time near the return of Jesus Christ. The three things are, you guys ready? The return of Jesus, the flood of Noah, and creation. You guys ready? Now the test. The return of Jesus, the flood of Noah, 
and creation. So those are the three things that are going to be unpacked. Now, the, in the context of the end times, you know, that's really one of the proofs today that we're living in the, in the end times. Do you realize the idea of um, evolution and the idea that there is no God has never in the history of mankind been in any civilization and any people until this century and the last century that we live in today? Every society around the world has always believed in gods and worshiped gods. Now they have pantheism and, and, and all kinds of gods and different idol worship. And whether they be Greek gods or mytho- mythological gods, every society through all of human history on every inch of the globe has always believed in a god. It's not until in, in this century and in the last that, that it began that the idea that there was no God and that there, there, there is um, that this that there was no creation. So that's something that's evidence that we're living in those days that Peter described. Let's look at verse one. Beloved. What does that mean? You know, that, that's like a that's a John word, right? John was the beloved disciple. And he used that word so many times. We went, we belabored that through the first first John is, is, is loved, loved, loved. And so another way be loved is, is maybe saying um, my love. If I spoke to you and I said my love, you guys are like, you're a creep, you're married and shouldn't be calling me my love. Well, this is Christian. And Peter here is saying to you, my love. In other words, I love you. You're beloved of God carries so much with it. And so it's funny because Peter's this big burly fisherman. History tells us he was big guy, 300 pound guy. He didn't run very fast. He probably sweat a lot and was a bull in a China closet. And he was a, he was a fisherman and sailors are traditionally foul mouthed, you know, people. And Peter was all that in a bag of chips. And, um, and yet two of his favorite words are my love and what was it, Peter's other favorite word? Precious. Precious. And so here Peter says, <coughs> Beloved, I now write you this second epistle. What does the word epistle mean? Letter. It just means letter. In both of which I stir up your pure mind by way of reminder. And this theme of, of way of reminder, we talked about it last week with um, um, that, that commencement speech that I told you guys about that oftentimes in teaching the word in sharing the word. And when you get opportunity to share the word, when you get opportunity to share with your friends, you don't have to feel like you, you have to give them some new revelation all the time. And unfortunately that's crept into the church, this idea that we have to wow people every week with something they've never heard. And, 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 and yet the Bible consistently reminds us that quality teaching of the word is just reminding us of what we already know. And reminding you of the things that are foundational to your faith. And so Peter says, stirring up by way of reminder. And then he goes on and he says that you may be mindful. He's talking about your mind and thinking through these things of the words which were spoken before the, by the holy prophets. So in the Old Testament and the holy prophets of old. And of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So things that were written by the Old Testament writers and the New Testament writers alike. Now, what's interesting is that Peter understood, even as he penned this letter, and he's going to go on at the end of this chapter, and he's going to tell us, and he's going to use Paul's name, but that that the things they were writing, he understood and he's attributing them to God's word or to scripture. And yet it hadn't been compiled and canonized into the Bible you have on your lap as he's writing it. But he understood by the Holy Spirit and attributes these things to the same weight as the Old Testament scriptures. And then he says in verse three, knowing this first, 
And here comes the three things, the three great lies that he's going to warn us about. Scoffers will come in the last day, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Where's the promise of his coming? What do you mean? He's not coming back. Where, where, when is he going to deliver? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Everything is continuing as it was. That, that Jesus is not coming. You know how we know he's not coming? Because he hasn't come yet. I, I, I read that recently on a, on a Facebook post, on a comment. Someone was talking about Jesus returning. Some guy got on there and said, he's not coming back. You know how I know he's not coming back? Because he didn't come back last year. And he didn't come back the year before that. And he didn't come back in 1988 when all the Christians said he was going to come back. And he didn't come back in this day. And, and because he didn't come back is why I know he's not. That would be like me saying, you know how I know I'm not going to die? Because I haven't died yet. No, sucker. You're going to die. And Jesus is coming back. And, 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 but yet the scoffers are going to say. And, and so when someone says that, it's almost like, hey, you know how I know Jesus is coming back? Because of your doubt. Because the Bible says that you're, you're going to raise up in the last days and doubt that Jesus is coming back. So by your very comment, you're, you're hastening or you're, you're proving that the Lord is coming back. And then the next one, he says, oh, I lost my spot. I was in the wrong book. I'm in 1 John. I'm like, okay, Peter's on this page. In verse 5, for this they willfully, somebody say willfully, Forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water. So they willfully um, are, are forgetting about um, and denying creation. Now, in order to believe, and, and, and again, this is where we could start unpacking because the issue here is creation versus evolution. And so we, we make an argument for creation versus evolution. The science is there. It's supported. We could spend a lot of time here. We could get into it. But again, just, just in order to just do an overview today. So we're going to highlight a very few things and, and not really go through it. But there's, there's tons of evidence. And the reality is the evidence, the scientific, physical evidence for creation is overwhelming. And the reason why it's, it's, it's suppressed and it's every time they find it and every time there's something that's contrary to what they want to they wanna teach as the state-taught re, uh, religion of evolution, they suppress it. Much like um, in, 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 in car companies, and, and this is true history of, of the car industry, but if there's a new carburetor or something that will make your car and one gallon of gas make your car drive for 300 miles... The, they, they buy the patents and they suppress them because they, they, they want to make money selling gas. So that kind of stuff happens all the time. They take something that can improve and make better and they suppress it. They hide it. They put it in a vault somewhere. And, and, and all the major companies own hundreds and hundreds of different patents on things that have been invented to try to make things better. Same thing is when there's creation science that is in abundance it's, it's suppressed in the secular community. They, they won't admit it. They'll hide it. They, um, do you guys remember Ben Stein? Ben Stein is a Jew, but he's, he's not a Messianic Jew. He's a secular Jew. He doesn't believe in Jesus or in the New Testament. And, and yet he's very reg highly regarded in the academic community. And, um, and, and he's somewhat famous. Well, Ben Stein made a movie several years ago called Expelled. Did anybody see Expelled? Anybody remember Expelled? A few of you? Okay, you can check it out if you want. But, but he makes just this one point. And again, he goes to um, major universities all over the United States. And he's trying to, to prove just one basic point. 
that any kind of creation science or intelligent design is absolutely not even entertained in secular universities of all sorts, major universities that you would all know, that we would all know all over the United States, that if you believe in creation, you can't get a job. If you believe there's a possibility of intelligent design, you're fired and can't get a job. The, the facts are suppressed, the evidence are, is suppressed, and they will not tolerate it among secular universities in this nation. Anybody in the science department who has any belief in, in, in intelligent design. And he proves it in this movie. And he, and, he, and he interviews the teachers and the faculty and the staff and the students and, and in multiple universities. And the question is, what are they so afraid of? If their science is true... Then, then why would they be afraid of, of creation science if, if, they can, if their science is true? But because they know their science is bunk, and because as Peter says, as Paul tells us in Romans, the only way you believe that is that you suppress the truth in unrighteousness and you willfully believe a lie is what the Bible says. Now, so what is the heart of the issue? The heart of the issue is not science. It's not archaeology. It's not history. The heart of the issue is a moral issue. And that's what Peter is going to tell us. David Jeremiah, um, he puts it this way. The most fundamental reason that people reject Jesus is not because they fail to understand the gospel, but because they do not want to change. They love darkness rather than light. And that's and Jesus said they love darkness rather than light. And, and that's the simple reality. It's a moral issue. Because if I admit that there's a creator... That begs a second question I don't want to answer. What is that question? If there is a creator God, and this all didn't happen by accident, somebody designed it and created it, and, and there's a God in heaven, the next question is, am I responsible to that God? Am I accountable to that God? Am I going to stand in judgment of that God one day? And because they don't want to answer that question, and because their conscience plagues them, they, they willfully believe a lie, and, and, and it has to be continually, continually perpetuated and pounded and pounded and pounded. And enough of that lie, 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 they, they can believe in the truth to the point where they won't even teach it in the schools. You know, I came from a Christian school, K-12 school, and in our, in our K-12 school, we taught both evolution and creation. And the reason why we taught evolution in a Christian school was because the kids needed to know the facts. They needed to know what, what's out there. They needed to know they're going to go on to university and other schools, and, and eventually they're, they're going to need to know this stuff. And because we're not afraid of the evolutionary science, that the, that the creation science is, is, so, is, is, is factual, is actual. There, there's one video I'll recommend to you guys. Um, and it's just kind of fun on this area. It's not real scientific. And some of this stuff is kind of eggheady and you, you lose, you know, interest anyways. But Ray Smart is a guy who has a ministry. Has ever heard of Ray Smart? And, and he does amazing um, work. Let me see if I can find the title of this video. Um, but if you're interested, you can go on YouTube. You can watch the video. It's called 10 of the Top Scientific Facts in the Bible. Um, the, the, the person who posted is Living Water. Living Waters, 10 of the top scientific facts in the Bible. And he goes through in there, 10 of the top scientific facts in the Bible. It's very interesting and, and good stuff. And then, as you guys know, Ken Ham um, with the Creation Institute. He's not with Creation Institute, huh? That's the other one. Um, but we have Creation Institute. Um, 
um, with Ken Ham. They, they're the ones they, they built the Noah's Ark in Kentucky and, um, you know, do tons of research. So it's out there. If, if you know, again, if you're interested, you, you can go. There's plenty, plenty, plenty of creation science that, that you can be aware of. And so in verse 6, it says, By which the world that then existed being flooded with water. So they're going to deny the creation. They're going to deny the flood. They're going to deny the return of Jesus Christ. You know who believed in the flood? Jesus believed in the flood. Noah definitely believed in the flood. God believes in the flood. Let me let me take you guys to just this interesting kind of... This was a nugget. I don't even know how I found this. This wasn't in anything. Um, I, was li- I was looking for something else in Ezekiel this week. And I come across this verse... Um, And listen to what it says in Ezekiel. It says in Ezekiel chapter 14, write that down in verse number 14. I'm going to start in 13. Son of man, when the land sins against me, my persistence, unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it. I will cut off its supply of bread, send famine on it and cut off man and beast from it. Even if these three men, listen, Noah, Daniel and Job were in it. They would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord God. So God is speaking to the prophet Ezekiel, and he calls three of his favorites, three of his his um, overachievers. I mean, like like when God tells David, he said, this is a man after my own heart. Like you're like, oh, I wish he would say something like that about me. Well, what would he say if he was talking to me? And yet when God in heaven is speaking to a prophet, Ezekiel, and he's telling the people, and he just chooses three guys. Man, how cool is that? What, what, how does that put your place when God says, man, Daniel and Noah and Job, even if those three righteous men were in that city, they would only save themselves. But what's interesting about the three that God chose is that Noah represents what? The flood. Daniel spoke most about what? End times and second coming of Christ. So we have the flood in Noah. We have Daniel of the second coming of Christ. And Job speaks about the third one that, we're, that Peter warns us about, creation. And, and all through Job, there's, there's the, the creation science is, is in abundance. In the book of Job, he tells us um, so, so many things that, that are scientific facts for our day today. You know, the Bible said thousands of years ago that the earth was supported on, on nothing. The earth, the earth was suspended and, and, and held up by nothing. It said that the earth was round. It, it says that, that, that you should quarantine sick people. And you think, well, what's that? That, not some of that stuff's crazy. That's what some of the stuff in the video. It says that the life is in the blood. But do you realize that these discoveries that the Bible listed, scientific facts that the Bible listed hundreds and thousands of years ago are things that we're only dis, uh, discovering today? And we could have learned from the, from the Bible? Do you know, do you know how, how George Washington died? George Washington became very ill. And his doctors began to, which was a common practice of his day, began to do bloodletting on him. And, the, and they, would, they, would, they would put an IV and they would let his blood run out thinking it would make him healthy. And they drained 40% of his blood. And George Washington died. And he was sick already. But the, the, that was not that long ago. And today... How does your doctor assess your health with a blood test? Well, the Bible told us that thousands of years ago. And, and, and everything about you can be tested in your blood. 
And, and, and you know, the interesting thing about um, most of these, uh, cre- not most, many of these creation scientists that are on our side, that are Christians, they're, you know, so many of them have a similar testimony. They were egghead scientists. They grew up in the evolutionary community their whole lives. And they finally got tired of all these Bible people and they went to the Bible to, to write it off and disprove it scientifically and started in Genesis. And by the time they got to Revelation, they didn't find one scientific error or problem in the Bible. And they all became Christians as a result and got saved. And so many creation scientists in, those, in, the, in that community got saved trying to go to the Bible and find a scientific error. There are none. And then it goes on and it says, um, actually, we're still in... Um, in verse number six, about the flood. Now, now, just really quickly on the the flood. Grand Canyon. Anybody know how the Grand Canyon was formed? Well, if you go to um, the Grand Canyon today and the park ranger takes you and he gives you his spiel that he gives 27 times a day and you stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon, and he's going to say, over millions and millions and millions of years. And I often wonder, are they sure it's not like... Two million? He's just not like two million one hundred thousand, two million one hundred and sixty-two. Like, I, what is it? You know, but millions and millions of years, the Colorado River carved its way and carved the Grand Canyon, and and that's how it happened. And you look at that little Colorado River and this huge Grand Canyon, you think, well, how come the? I've been standing at the Mississippi River before, and it's way more impressive than the Colorado River. How come it didn't carve a Grand Canyon? And how come every river over millions and millions of years didn't carve Grand Canyons? And and yet. The, what, what looks, if you look at the Grand Canyon, it's all, there's just plateaus all the way around it. As if when the water ran off, that the water in a, in a cataclysmic, cataclysmic event created in, in an instant, the Grand Canyon. Now, the, um, the, the difference really quickly between evolution and, and creation oftentimes is evolution adds just millions and millions of years to everything. You know, when they can't figure something out, they just add more millions. The science book... The science book that I had in eighth grade dated the earth like at so many millions of years old, 10 million years old. Well, today, how old do they say the earth is? Are we in the billions by now, huh? Well, since I was in eighth grade, I'm not that old. Like something's not right, but they rewrite the science books because they have to keep adding time and time and time to solve all their problems. Where when in creation science, one of the things you realize is that most of these events are explained by cataclysmic events, biblical events, the worldwide deluge, the flood, the earth turning on its axis, Joshua's long day, um, the sun standing still, and, and, and these things that, that, are, that wake, make way more sense. But God gave us a reprieve on the whole Grand Canyon, millions and millions of whatever, billions of years for the Colorado River to carve this thing out. And in um, Mount St. Helen erupted. Anybody remember? You were there? And, and when Mount St. Helen erupted, in six minutes, it carved out a, a, a miniature Grand Canyon, one fortieth scale to the Grand Canyon in Arizona in six minutes. The, the, there, there was a wave that went up 800 feet high at Mount St. Helen of water, and it pulled all the trees and all of the, the bark and everything down off the mountain into the lake. And the trees and the bark, many of them hit the bottom of the lake, and the bark was stripped and, and immediately formed sediment that is how you create coal. And coal was created in six minutes. And, and, and how do the evolutionists explain coal? Millions and millions and millions of years... And God did it in six minutes when Mount St. Helen erupted. 
and on and on and on of things that, that scientific stuff that happened in the eruption of Mount St. Helen that God did in an instant with a cataclysmic event that, that previously only science. So what you would think is the scientific community after the eruption of Mount St. Helens, after the miniature Grand Canyon was formed in six minutes and not millions and millions of years, that they would look at that evidence and then change and then... Ad- nope. You don't hear it. The eruption in Mount St. Helens, you know where you're not going to find that? In your student's eighth grade science book. It's not going to be there. Why? Because they willfully suppress the truth and unrighteousness, as the Bible says. It's a moral issue. They don't want to admit there's a God. They don't want to um, have to answer the second question. And that's what Peter tells us. And again, you guys, this is end time stuff. The, the thing that's cool about these prophecies is that... Um, the, this science and that kind of suppression, it didn't happen 300 years ago. It didn't happen 400 years ago. It didn't happen from 300 years ago all the way back to Adam and Eve. It's new in this century and in the last. And then in verse 7, he says, But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are now reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. We're going to get into that fire thing in a minute. But beloved, my loves... Do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. What are you talking about, Willis? No, that one's a little tough. Verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So he says he's not willing that any should perish. And he's not, he's not slack as some um, concerning slackness, as some would say. That he's long-suffering. The Bible says God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That he desires that all come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And some say, well, where is he at? Things go on as, they've, as they always have. And Jesus said he's been going to come back for 2,000 years and he's not coming back. And Peter says, well, with the Lord... A day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. So for the Lord, it's only been two days. No big deal, right? So the, with this thousand, day, thousand years to a day, the, the Lord is outside of time, number one. Now, that doesn't explain or, or help us give understanding that, that he's, he's, when he's coming back and how he's coming back. But as far as time goes, time is something that's created for you and I. The interesting thing about time, and it's, it's, it's in one of those movies, and I... Um, where they get on a, a ship and they go to sleep and it takes 90 years to get to where they're going. And then, um, <clears throat> and then, and then 90 years back, but the time on earth is elapsed. So it's four by, by travel. Of, if we travel at the speed of light, it's four and a half years to our nearest, nearest star. But the thing is, if you got on there and you got on a, a rocket ship traveling the speed of light for 186,000 miles per second, at the speed of life, it would take you four and a half years to get to the nearest star. You get there, you check it out, you turn the boat around four and a half years back, 186,000 miles per second. The, 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 the problem is when you got back to Earth, in those eight, nine years that you were gone, through time travel, 6,000 years elapsed on the Earth. And, and, and God is outside of time, and, and he's not bound, nor is he bound by time. But, but here where Peter says that a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is a day, I want you to look at this thing just a little differently. God created the heavens and the earth and all that's in them in how many days? Six is the, or seven, either one, right? He created in six, rested on the seventh. Seven days of creation, six days of working, one day of rest. 
So, um, and then from Jesus to Adam and Eve, we have roughly about 4,000 years of human history. From Jesus to today, we have about 2,000 years of human history. So only for you really, really smart mathematician eggheads, how many years of human history does that give us? Four plus two. Six. You guys are good. I didn't think any of you would get it. So 6,000 years of human history. And on a prophetic model from what Peter gives us, there's some that would say, and I'm maybe in that class, that, that this is a prophetic model that um, you, you take the, the six days of creation and on the seventh day he rested. Now, the next um, event in our human history is the rapture of the church, followed by a seven-year period where, where God, the day of the Lord, where God's wrath is poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. What happens right after the seven-year period? Anybody? The millennial reign of Christ. The Bible details it out in the book of Revelation, a thousand-year reign of Christ here on earth. At the end of that thousand years is where we're going to get to here in a minute with Peter. Um, we, we have new heaven and new earth come down. So we have 6,000 years, and then we have this last 1,000-year period, which would be the seventh day or, the, or representing the day that God rested. So a day is as a 1,000 years, a 1,000 years is as a day. And if they're days of creation, some would believe that we'll have 6,000 years of human history. And then, in the, and then at the end of the 6,000 years, in the beginning of the seventh millennium, or that, that at that point, we, we will be entering into that 1,000-year millennial reign of Christ. So... Then he says, um, the, the other thing is you have the, the seven days of creation. And then also you have the seven Jewish feasts, which are a prophetic model, the same prophetic model of the, the times that, that the Lord will come back. Did I lose everybody on that one? Seven days. Days is a thousand years. Bottom line is lift your eyes because your redemption draws near. Jesus is coming soon. In verse 10, it says, but the day of the Lord. Now, we're going to continue, but... That little phrase, you just got to be familiar with it as we move on. You'll find that phrase over and over and over again in the Bible, the day of the Lord. Here's basically what you need to know about the day of the Lord. It's a terrible day. The day of the Lord, it's called in the Bible, the great and awesome day of the Lord. It's called the terrible day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. It's that seven-year tribulation period where God is going to pour out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting world. The day of the Lord is not... It's we're thankful because we if we've escaped it and we miss it in the rapture and we go up in the rapture first. But this day of the Lord is where this long suffering of God, if you will, runs out where the last person has gotten saved. And God then judges a Christ rejected world. And then in verse um, in the rest of 10, it says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. So inconsistent with what Paul tells the um, uh, tells us as well um, is that, that it's going to come as a thief in the night. And so a time when we don't expect and the Lord will come and, and, and steal us away in the rapture in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Have you guys ever heard a Christian say, oh, it's all going to burn in the end. My uh, one of my mentors and pastor friends, Jackie Roberts, who's in Buell Calvary Chapel now, who him and I shared an office for a long time. And Jackie's kind of an outdoorsman, kind of man's man. And he would say that about everything. Oh, it's going to burn in the end, brother. It's like, hey, can I have that? Oh, it's all going to burn in the end, brother. Go for it. You know, like, 
It's like, hey, cool, man. I like them sunglasses. Can I have those? Oh, they're going to burn in the end. But this is, this is where he got it from. And it's actually theologically correct that it's all going to burn in the end. Now, um, there, there's an interesting um, thing I want to show you guys. And you've got to see it. It's in, it's in Colossians. So if you'll turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Um, so w- within an atom... Everything that, that, that we have, everything that you are, everything that's in the chair, that's in the pulpit, that's in my book, is made up of tiny little atoms, right? Molecules. And everything is um, in, a, in a cup of water. There's enough atomic energy to, to power the largest ship on the ocean. And so everything is made up and all matter. Everything is made of rapidly moving particles um, of, of opposite charges. So... The, it, you guys ever take a magnet and try to push, put a magnet together that's turned the wrong way? The positive parts of the magnet, they do what? They repel. And, and an atom that, that makes up everything that we have, including us, is made up of positively charged neutrons that want to repel, but yet they don't. But man figured out how to split the atom. And what, what was the result? The atom bomb. And the amount of energy that was released um, when we dropped an uh, uh, multiple atom bombs upon Japan, right? And so the, 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 the question in science is what holds atoms together? It really doesn't make any sense. And, and anywhere you go and you read, and I read several articles and I have them, but I won't bore you with them. They say the more we learn about the atom, the more we realize the less we knew. And, and what, what in science can, can, can... So since they don't know, this is, what they, this is what they say. You know what holds them together? Atomic glue, yeah, that'd be a good answer. That's usually what they say about everything. Millions and millions and millions of years. But no, they say uh, atomic glue. What's atomic glue? It's invisible, but hey, I want to tell you what I want to tell you what holds them together. This is what the Bible says holds them together. Look at w- with me at, in Colossians chapter one. It says he capital H. That's a question. He capital H. Yes is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created that are in the heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. Verse 16 says, for by him, capital H, all things were created. Who's him there? But I thought God created all things. Ding, 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 ding. Jesus is God. The Bible says Genesis 1.1. You should all have this simple verse memorized. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. The word God is Elohim. The word Elohim carries Father, Son, and Holy Spirit within the name. Three in one. And in the creation story, we see the Father, the Son, and, and Jesus there. But here, the writer Paul tells us theologically that Jesus created the heavens and the earth and all that's in them. He doesn't make a distinction between the Father and the Holy Spirit. And he says that Jesus created all things. And if Jesus was there in the beginning and at creation, he cannot, nor is he a created being of God. He is God himself and is the creator. And it says, and you can't, I don't know how you could twist this. It says, for by him, Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things. Listen. We're created through him and for him. And then last verse 17. And he is before all things and in him all things consist. Do you know what holds all those atoms together? Jesus. 
Somebody. Jesus. You know what holds the atoms together? Jesus. And, and that is the reality. You know what Peter's going to tell us Jesus is going to do at the end of the millennial reign? He's going to let go. And the natural bomb that God created within his own creation is going to go off. And everything is going to burn with a fervent heat. And God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. But there is going to come a day where it's all going to burn and Jesus is going to let go. I remember a good friend of mine came out here to preach for me and really, really impactful sermon that he shared. I'll never forget it. And he was talking about this concept and he was saying, you know, when, when Jesus went to die on the cross, they took nine-inch nails, rusty nine-inch nails. I don't know if you've ever seen one. It looks like a railroad spike. And, and they, they drove a, a nail through Jesus' hands and through his feet. And Jesus had to hold those nails together. And all Jesus had to do was let go. But he didn't let go. He held on. He held on. He held on to the very nails that pierced his hands and his feet. But one day, Jesus is going to let go. We're back to First Peter, Second Peter chapter 3. And it's all going to burn. Those atoms are going to um, explode. And it says... Therefore, since all these things in verse 11 will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Now, Peter's starting to warm us up with the therefore. What is the therefore, therefore? Whenever you read the word therefore in the Bible, you've got to see what it's there for. The word therefore is an application word. Hey, I told you a bunch of cool stuff about God, but here's how you apply it to your life. Because if you just got this head knowledge about God, but you don't have wisdom to apply it to your life, do you know that the smartest people in the world intellectually struggle the most socially? And, and, and the, 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 the people, even in schools, they can't function in schools or they drop out. And many, many very, very um, intelligent people don't function well in society and in schools and institutions. They go on later, maybe after high school and after that, that part of life and do great and amazing things. But, but here's the difference. If you take head knowledge by itself without the love and the grace and the wisdom of God, then, then you, you can't apply that to change lives. You can't apply that to social structures, to doing well and, and, and being a difference and loving people and, and having that, that, that social structure. So Peter says, hey, that's what those therefores are there for. We take this, all this stuff, this theological, this deep stuff I'm going to give you, but here's, here's how it should affect your, your life on a practical basis. Because if it doesn't affect, if your Sunday doesn't change your Monday, then your Sunday didn't what? Didn't count. If your Sunday don't change your Monday, then your Sunday don't count. And so Peter's not going to let that happen to you. He's going to tell you, he's going to start to warm up. And then when we get to 14, he's going to hit us with the, the final therefore. But listen, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Since all these things are going to burn up, what type of person should you be in holiness and conduct? The type of person that parks at Walmart in the very back and puts cones around that beautiful car you got so lest somebody get too close to it? Check it out, bro. It's all going to burn in the end. <laughs> and it'll, pro it'll probably end up in a junkyard long before that. And, and, and again, what manner, with this information, what manner of person are you going to be? It's all going to burn. But you know, where, where doesn't it burn? Where is it not going to burn? Where, where can you keep it forever? What did Jesus say? He said, store up your treasures in heaven where thieves don't break in and steal, where moths can't, can't eat it and where rust won't destroy it. And, and store up your treasure in heaven. That's what Peter's saying. This stuff's all going to burn in the end. And then he goes on and he says, 
Looking for and hastening the coming day of God. Looking for, that's a biblical principle. Christians, listen to me. It's a biblical uh, principle for you as a Christian is that you hasten and you look for and you expect the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's repeated by all the different authors. John tells us that that when you have that hope and that expectation that it purifies how you live. And, And Jesus himself said, lift your eyes, your redemption draws near. And then Peter goes on in verse 12 and he says, Because of which the heavens will be dissolved being on fire and the elements will melt away with a fervent heat. Nevertheless, what's the next word in verse 13? You guys are with me, right? You're following with me in your Bible? Super important you read along with me in your Bible as we go through this stuff and let the Holy Spirit put this stuff in your heart. Nevertheless, who? We, we, Peter's talking to Christians. He's talking to us. That's we, that's you, that's me. Let that apply. And Peter says, we, listen, we, according to his promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, when Peter says new heaven and new earth, what is, what does that immediately bring up in your mind? Anybody? A new heaven and a new earth. What does that, what does that remind you of? Bail them out, Lid. They're struggling. Of what? Heaven. She don't even know. Jesus! (laughs) Uh, All right. So I'm going to, let's go to Revelation 21. What it should remind you of is Revelation 21. When I say a new heaven and a new earth. Okay. It's, it's secondary. It's secondary. Actually, when Peter said it, what's, what should be our first thought is Revelation 21. Because what does Revelation 21 verse one say? Now I saw a what? A new heaven and a new earth. So when Peter says a new heaven and a new earth, the way my mind goes immediately, it goes, well, I've heard that before. I read that somewhere. It's in Revelation. Now, we, we got to bring up, and we're going to wrap up, you guys. I'm trying to talk fast, and hopefully I'm not losing you because I want to get done in a, in, a, in a timely manner here. But we, we have to put it all in a, in a chronological time frame so you can find out where we are. So um, Peter says the day of the Lord is going to come. And so we have the day of the Lord is a seven-year tribulation period where God's going to pour out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting world. The rapture, as I believe it, as I understand it, as its core to my being, is going to happen at the beginning of that seven-year tribulation period. The church is going to be removed. The bride of Christ is going to be removed. And God is going to begin. In the beginning of that seven-year period of, of the day of the Lord, it's terrible. Even just the very first plague, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, when they bring death and war and famine and pestilence upon the world, a third of the population of planet Earth during that first plague is killed off and dies. Then, then it gets worse, if you can believe it, as it goes on. At the end of the seven-year tribulation period, we have what we all commonly call and know, and they make lame movies about, called the Battle of Armageddon. The real battle of Armageddon is not much of a battle because Jesus is fighting in it. And if Jesus is fighting on this side and it doesn't matter what's fighting on this side, this side's going to win. And it's not going to be much of a fight. So the battle of Armageddon ends. At the end of the battle of Armageddon, the Bible says we're going to go into a thousand year um, period called the millennial reign of Christ where Jesus is going to come and he's going to rule and reign here on earth. and, And we will have a position to rule and reign with him for a thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, he's going to let Satan out. Now, I know some of this stuff is hard to swallow. It's what the Bible teaches. Like, this is the part for me that's hard to swallow. After having perfect rule and reign, 
for a thousand years here on the earth, Satan is led out and he goes back and he, 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 he tries to start one last rebellion against God. And guess what happens? People follow him. How could you, how in the world at that point could you still follow Satan? But they do. And then at the end of the thousand years, when Satan is led out, God casts him now finally. And, and just back up. Look with me really quick. Revelation 20, I'm in verse 14 and 15. Just two verses back from a new heaven and a new earth. This is what we call the great divide. Between chapter 20 and 21 of Revelation, everything divides. This is the final time because we have all these other steps leading up to the final divide between heaven and hell forever. And right here, God, everybody who's going to be in hell for eternity is cast into the lake of fire. Satan is cast into the lake of fire for eternity. Previously, he was only put in for a thousand years and then let out at the end. And this is the great divide between Revelation 20 and 21. It says, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. So Hades is a word that means hell. It's a temporary hell that exists today. And And the lake of fire is eternal for all of eternity. And so the current hell is cast into the lake of fire. And and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So this is the final divide. And at that time, the very next verse, John tells us, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and also there was no more sea. So at that point in the great divide is where we have the the, the word of Peter being fulfilled that God is going to let go. And the heavens and the earth, as they are today, are going to burn with fire. But praise God, God's going to bring a new heaven. And the word new there that's used is... is, um, to create from 